This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Baba Prasad, uh, President and CEO of the Vivekan Group. Uh, and we're going to talk to him today about his book, uh, Nimble, which is about how you can make yourself and your company resilient in the age of constant change. Uh, Prasad, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. I'm very happy to be with you, Bukul. So uh, what inspired you to write Nimble? I think that's probably a good place to start. Very good. Well, actually, you know, I was a very quantitative guy. I got a PhD in operations management at Wharton. And my models of, uh, I was primarily working with uh, evaluating information technology. In uh, you know, it's a big justification issue there because you can't project the returns from information technology at that time. So um, when I started out, the big debate in IT circles was how do you justify productivity um, you know, from IT, because you don't seem to be seeing IT returns in productivity. You investing companies are investing a lot in IT, but there don't seem to be much productivity improvement. So I did a little bit of work on it, and my work in the service industry, in retail industry, actually took me to understand that there's a huge people component in this, especially in information technology. And I began to argue that if you want to evaluate uh, information technology, it needs to be more in terms of flexibility that it affords to the organization, that it brings to the organization. So how to evaluate that flexibility was a question. And I was trying various microeconomic models, uh, doing quantitative modeling, but I felt that my assumptions was, were very, very strict, didn't allow me to develop a generalized theory about uh, flexibility. And so, I, believe it or not, in Helsinki, I found myself in uh, winter uh, of 98, I found myself in Helsinki. Now, this is where I had a kind of, a, of an epiphanic uh, moment because um, here I was attending a conference on information systems and I had forgotten my adapter for my laptop. And I didn't know anything in Finnish, to speak Finnish, right? And I didn't know much about Helsinki because I had been there just the first time. And the adventure of finding a place, and ultimately got to a store called Stockman's, uh, a big department store, which had the adapter that I needed. But the adventure of getting there and getting back to the hotel kind of started off a, a chain of thought for me. So how do we handle uncertainty in our individual lives? And it turns out that we've always, humans have always, over the millennia, used intelligence to adapt to uh, handle uncertainty, to find their ways in new situations, just as I had done in Helsinki. And so that inspired me to think of a, a very different way of approaching agility um, and trying to think of the organization as being, you know, something like an intelligent animal. How do we, what is the organizational equivalent of human intelligence? That, that led to the whole book. So that that's very interesting because you know as as you know everybody talks about agility, but you know it's not very easy to define what exactly it is and and also why does it matter for companies and individuals? Correct. No, agility is actually uh, quite often confused with speedy response, and that's where I think I I need to make a difference. Where we can actually think of uh, of agility as. Uh, being both speedy and effective. 
and it is a speedy and effective response not just to current circumstances but also things that may be right now beyond the horizon you know so it's not just a reactive response but it also needs to be thought of as a strategic response so this is where agility needs to come in and say okay are we prepared to handle a future which unfolds and we don't know how it will unfold so the concept of strategy now changes from being plans of actions that we will do in the future to becoming developing capabilities in the organization that can allow us to handle different kinds of futures that may evolve so that's where the the big thing is and of course if you don't have it you really die because uh, you know there's so many uh, companies that have just folded uh, when you don't have agility yeah. so uh, i think it may be interesting uh, to to look at rather than a company that folded maybe an example of a company whose success was driven by agility uh, could you could you give us uh, and our listeners uh, and our uh, readers an example of a company like that absolutely in fact uh, right now um, the retail industry is going through tremendous uh, ups and downs uh, with so many store closings and the shift of customers from you know regular stores to online marketplaces and this tremendous turbulence in that market and in that uh, especially fashion industry the fast fashion industry is is uh, one area that's really really being affected and there there's a standout example which is zara you know the spanish company which is uh, which is uh, actually part of the inditex group and this company has been uh, at the forefront because they've understood that at the center of the whole turbulence is the customer right and the customer's taste changed so rapidly so how would you prepare to handle these uh, this particular customer who's globalized now and who's uh, you know whose tastes are difficult to predict so they've done a fantastic job of being able to sense and respond and also think strategically within their organization in terms of how would we prepare to handle such circumstances such uh, changing customers yeah. so we, we, i'd love to dive a little deeper a little further uh, uh, into our conversation about some of the factors that uh, uh, drive strategic agility but just to uh-huh. take a flip side uh, of a contrary example uh, uh-huh. what are some of the implications if a company is not nimble can you give an example of a company that paid the price because it wasn't as nimble as it should have been yeah let let's look back a little bit in history okay to early 90s when the microcomputer emerged you know the what we call the pc right and and then there were the unix workstations which were the workstations so they all evolved around the late 80s early 90s and what happened was uh, there's one company the the entire mini computer industry is an example of how co- companies die but deck digital equipment corporation is an example of how companies can just die even if they are huge okay. and digital equipment company just to give you a picture was a 14 billion dollar company at that time in the early 90s and it was uh, it had offices in 95 countries across the world it was second only to ibm but it was a matter of 6 to 7 years because uh, it didn't uh, anticipate the emergence of the microcomputers it just folded and was ultimately bought over by compaq so a company cannot rest on its resources just because we are too big you can't afford to think you're safe you know so this is a classic example of a company that was not nimble and had to pay the price by dying 
So why is it so hard for companies to be nimble? Uh, uh, could you speak a little bit about the main barriers to agility? Sure. Actually, a couple of things come to mind, which is, you know, and we've talked, uh, and this has become quite uh, common knowledge nowadays, but two things about agility are mindsets and culture. Okay? And both of these play off each other. Basically, what happens is that we are trapped in a mindset that's very risk uh, evaluation kind of uh, mindset, where you're trying to say if we can actually predict the returns and outcomes and things like that, where really you need to be thinking about uncertainty. And so what happens in risk versus uncertainty is that in uncertainty, you, don't, you can't make a singular bet on anything and say this is going to be your you know, uh, a discounted cash flow analysis or a net present value of what we will invest right now. So what happens here is you have to actually say, oh, well, let's take a gamble. We don't know how it's going to play, but we have a certain kind of idea that it's going to be a good bet. And we, we don't know the, the implications of that. So in that case, you can't make massive investments. So you have to be prepared to make smaller strides. So like, it's like walking on ice. You can't take giant strides on, on ice. You need to take small steps and make sure that the ground is firm before you take the next step. And so here, that, that's one kind of thing that, that happens. And the second, because we talk about culture, people try to bite a large piece of, of change management and try to change the entire organization's culture, the entire organization's structure. And that needs uh, to be tempered a bit. That we need to, while it's about culture, we need to think about taking it in smaller bites, running it in smaller divisions, see how that works. Is there something peculiar in our company that's different from what is best practice out there? So how do we bring those things? So these structural changes that we need to bring in uh, to change, uh, to accommodate for culture, these are some of the big barriers that we see with the companies becoming nimble. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, just as you were speaking, I, I remembered that... Uh, you know, there's in addition to Digital Equipment Corporation, there's another really interesting example in your book that I found so hmm. illuminating, and that's of Nokia. Uh, you know, and, and what what's interesting there is that Nokia was nimble in some respects, but it wasn't enough to save the company. And I was wondering if you could tell our audience that story and, and what can be learned from Nokia's example. Absolutely. In fact, what I call intelligence-driven uh, organization. In fact, I think that, you know, if you can trace the history of the company, there was, uh, you know, the competitor, the fierce competitor of the Porter framework who looked at competitive forces and positioned uh, itself in the, in the market and said, I'm going to be a low-cost provider or, or a high-end, high-cost provider. So that kind of positioning, we moved from that in the mid-'90s to something called resource-based view where we said, Core competence is what matters, so let's focus on the core competence. And then we move to something called fast companies, right, where the strategic response was very quick. You needed to be uh, exploit, you needed to be the first to market, you needed to exploit speed. But all that is gone. What I think of the future is going to be what I call the intelligence-driven company. So what does that mean? When I looked at agility from the intelligence perspective, it suddenly appeared that, you know, uh, in psychology literature, we don't any longer talk about IQ, really. We talk about what is called multiple intelligences. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, a musician can be tremendously intelligent but may not be able to score high on an IQ test. 
Um, so you see that intelligence expressed in musical talent. So similarly, a basketball player might be ex uh, extremely good on the court, but uh, doesn't explain, you know, doesn't score high on an IQ test. So this led to a theory called multiple intelligences. And when I looked at that model and started to think about agility and the organizational equivalent of intelligence, uh, I talked about multiple agilities. Okay, so there's not just one agility, but multiple agilities in the organization. And Nokia, as you bring about, as you talked, uh, you know, uh, it brings about this extremely interesting example of how a company can be agile or nimble in certain uh, ways, but not nimble in other ways, which led to its downfall. So Nokia was fantastic for supply chain agility, and there's a very interesting case that I trace in the in the book uh, about how uh, there was a fire in a uh, Philips semiconductor factory in New Mexico, and it was able to recover from that, although a critical chip was missing. Uh, unlike Ericsson, which uh, faltered because of that same thing, and as a result, uh, Ericsson folded and had to be bought over by Sony. So uh, Nokia was a perfect example of supply chain agility. But so it didn't take, carry that agility over into other dimensions. So for instance, it didn't do anything with, uh, you know, when the OS, new OS was released by, um, by, no, by Android, uh, by Google Android and uh, iOS. It didn't do any of these changes. It didn't anticipate those. As a result, it stuck with its old uh, Symbian OS and that failed again. So the lots of ways in which it uh, demonstrated lack, uh, lack of agility. Uh, clamshell phones were introduced by Motorola and uh, Nokia just didn't respond to that. So all these cumulatively added up and as a result, Nokia just failed. So that, that's what I found really fascinating that you know companies, that there are different kinds of agility, that it's not a monolithic thing. And that a company can be agile in some areas, but not agile in other ways, and that can lead to its downfall. So, so looking at your approach of uh, what you call strategic or intelligence-driven agility, would you be able to explain your model of five agilities and how this approach differs uh, from the way in which companies have traditionally thought about agility? Fine. Uh, <clears throat> actually, let me talk about the uh, five agilities. Let me outline them for you. Analytical agility, which is the first one, so is about analysis, you know, about being able to change uh, modes of analysis. So you're not stuck with one kind of uh, approach to solving problems, but you can have multiple approaches to solving problems. So, for instance, just in budgeting, you're not just thinking about the return on investment and discounted cash flow analysis kind of thing, but you may also be thinking about options kind of thinking, which is a new way of thinking about investment. So uh, finding the real problems, shifting between different modes of analysis, this is what analytical agility does. Then you have the operational agility, which is the agility, which is the, the commonly conceptualized thing that uh, something fails, can we actually do find another way of doing this, the same stuff? Um, so let's say on a production floor, one machine fails. Do we have, do we have another machine that can take over and uh, do the job? So this this is what operational agility is. Inventive agility is uh, the ability to solve different kinds of problems in new ways or find new solutions uh, and new products. So it drives the innovation part of it. But a lot of it is about, you know, sometimes you might have to 
just adapt an existing uh, product or solution to a new kind of market. Or sometimes you might have to invent a whole new product. So that's what inventive agility is. It gives you the ability to do different kinds of innovation or different processes of innovation. And then communicative agility is all about persuasion. And this is where you know, either the marketing uh, function of a company or you know, persuasive leadership of an individual, um, this is where this comes in. So in, we see this often in presidential debates uh, in, that, uh, in terms of personal leadership, but also in companies when they handle crisis, communication crises, uh, when they have to actually engage in marketing campaigns, promote a new idea. So it allows us to use different kinds of persuasive methods. Uh, do we cajole? Do we threaten? Do we use fear? You know, those kinds of things. But basically the motivation and the convincing, about, uh, uh, convincing others about the value of what we are saying through words and speech, this is what communicative intelligence is about. So for a long time, I had just these four, um, analytical, operational, communicative, and inventive. And these four where I, I was uh, saying were the four agilities that you need. But suddenly, uh, one company uh, that I was saying is a prime example of using these four agilities collapsed. And it collapsed overnight, and that was uh, Enron. Yes, very true. Right? And Enron was for six years before it collapsed. It was named six consecutive years. It was named the number one innovative company in the world. So what happened here? And, well, when they traced it back, one can easily say that it was a, a breach of ethics. But what I felt as, after going back to the drawing board and thinking about it for several months was, you know, that this is not just a, an ethical breach. It's a lack of thinking about the future. It's a lack of foresight. It's a lack of uh, thinking about uh, the, the visionary aspect, as I call it. So that's why I had a fifth agility, which is called visionary agility. And that recognizes the long-term impacts of what you're doing now. It thinks about the ethical implications. It goes beyond the here and now and extends into, you know, uh, thinking beyond uh, bottom line, beyond selfishness. So these are things that the visionary uh, agility brings in. So these are the five different kinds of agilities in my framework. Now, if we were to dive deeper into each of these uh, uh, mm -hmm. five components of agility or five agilities, uh, how, how could companies develop each of these and what lessons can other companies learn from those that have succeeded in developing these agilities? Yeah, absolutely. In, in the analytical agility, let's start with that. Uh, what happens is Companies usually get trapped into, you know, doing things one way, especially in terms of analysis. Um, and I'll give you a classic uh, uh, contra example here. Okay. McKinsey, for instance, and I don't know if you've heard about this big story, but it was a big fiasco with McKinsey. McKinsey and uh, AT&T have an interesting story, and it's pretty well known. In the mid-'80s, AT&T, after it was broken up uh, by the Supreme Court and ordered to become uh, baby bells, uh, had a lot of cell phone lines on its hands, and it didn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So it approached McKinsey, and McKinsey did an analysis, and they evaluated the cell phone lines uh, just as you would evaluate soap. 
mm-hmm. or any kind of uh, you know consumer product and they predicted that by the year 1999 there would ha- there would be about 900000 phones in the world mm. and that was just a pittance right so uh, typically so what uh, AT&T did was it got rid of its uh, cell phone lines but come about 8 to 10 years later cell phones were expand uh, exploding the cell phone market was exploding 900000 phones were not just being sold in 2015 years but they were being sold every 3 months mm-hmm. okay. so here was AT&T here was AT&T scrambling back to buy all those phones that uh, the cell lines that they sold and had actually to pay about 5 billion dollars to Meco Cellular to get back those lines now what happened here it's not that uh, you know uh, mckinsey was not capable of analytical skills but really what mckinsey did was it used a consumer product model and applied it there it only had to look back and realize that in between 1905 and 1910 or so when AT&T uh, introduced the landlines the explosion was exactly the same as what was happening with cell phone lines and that was because of something called network effects that right. this is a communicative device which uh, in which the value of having the device becomes more as the network expands and in fact that increases exponentially as the network uh, increases the network size increases so that just recognize that and use that model instead of the consumer products model they would have made a very different suggestion so this is a classic case of how companies need to think about using different kinds of analysis within their organization that's analytical agility and of course in operational agility you you need to think about different kinds of ways of doing things right so it's not just one way of production it's not just one way of supplying the market so you introduce supply chain flexibility you introduce manufacturing flexibility how do you do all these things in the organization that's or the gamut of uh, you know operational agility inventive agility again you come back a lot of work has been done in innovation and so you know different ways of idea generation different ways of idea evaluation uh, how do you take the idea from concept to product these are things that you would need to pay attention to but there is one caveat i want to uh, offer here which is that commonly uh, innovation is perceived to be a good thing but sometimes it can actually be a bad thing and uh, lego discovered it the hard way that they had done too much innovation and as a result that you know they were cannibalizing products were cannibalizing themselves in the market and uh, they had a very bad time uh, every denison this is also a story i tell in the book mm-hmm. um, every denison also over invested in innovation and as a result so many products too many products were going into production and the supply chain became very different the manufacturing also and the supply chain became very difficult to manage so these are cases where innovative uh, you know intelligence or inventive agility uh, became ran amok you know unbalanced uh, communicative you must always have ways to handle different uh, markets uh, are you tailoring your message to the market do you have different ways of reaching different audiences uh, what happens in a crisis do you have a, a crisis plan so these are ways in which uh, companies can plan, plan for communicative agility 
But where visionary agility comes in, it's all about a mindset, right? So it's about, oh, I'm responding to the situation, but what are the long-term thinking? What's the long-term thinking here? Uh, five years from now, by this response, because of this response, where will we be? Um, is it affecting a broad swath of people, a narrow swath of people? How, how, how broad is the impact? These are questions that have to be developed into the culture. So this is something that has to be consciously incorporated into decision-making, that you're not just responding to uh, a crisis like at the moment, but also responding, thinking about the long-term consequences. So these are the five agilities, and you can actually develop a plan to build these agilities in the company. Now, how do these five work together, I wonder? Okay, so this is the key thing that, uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that we do when we start off with companies is uh, help them to think through mapping. So they look at the world outside and the way it's evolving and say, oh, which of these five agilities do we need? Uh, you often always, you see, my analogy that I give is if you think of the four uh, agilities as primary colors, so analytical, operational, inventive, and communicative. You can address any situation with a combination of these. Okay, you can combine them just like the, you combine the primary colors to get any color. But you need the visionary as a medium to mix those colors. So the visionary has, has to always be there because otherwise you will be making uh, terribly reactive responses which may hurt you in the long term. So the way they would work is we start off with a mapping and we say, well, what do we need in the near and medium term uh, for this company? Which of these five agilities do we need? How much do we need them? And then we, take a, we have an assessment where you can actually go and assess uh, the agilities in your company. And you say, okay, well, we are here, but we need to have those. So how do we get from here to there? So how do we build these capabilities? How long will it take us to build these capabilities? Can we draw up a plan? Uh, to do that. So that's how, you know, these five agilities work together in an organization. So that, uh, what you say is really interesting because in, in my uh, experience, uh, huh. when companies start out and when they're in sort of startup phase, uh, they tend to be very scrappy and nimble and uh, fast moving. It's a small team and uh, very passionate and it's uh, usually possible to be quite nimble but as they grow in size as a result of this and they can become more successful and become big yeah. uh, somehow they seem to become more sluggish so is there a way for companies to remain agile especially as they grow in size yeah there are in fact i had one article some time ago called how can you make giants nimble hmm. you know so basically the argument there is that you can use these very same things and if you look at how Hire, for instance, has retained, you know, Hire, the Chinese company, has grown from being a startup kind of thing to becoming a world leader in, in uh, you know, all the um, electronic, uh, electronic uh, sector, you know, especially the, uh, the kitchen machines and the dishwashers and the refrigerators. You'll see that you, they have maintained a culture of business model uh, innovation. So what they do is they're not stuck to one kind of business model. They're constantly evolving their business model. So it's built into the 
organizational structure that they are constantly evaluating what they're doing. And you can consciously do that. And you can go into a company and, and start to build that, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, you're quite right. In fact, uh, as you may have seen, uh, the CEO of Hire, Jean Ruemin, just uh, mm -hmm. we just published an interview with him in Knowledge at Wharton where he explained uh, their business model innovation uh, and the whole micro-enterprise strategy. Uh, so you're, you're, quite, you're quite right about that. Uh, so just to, uh, in conclusion, to wrap up, uh, what advice would you give to CEOs who would like to get started on making their organizations more nimble and agile? Where do you think they should start? So I think, you know, many companies have come to me with this. And what we do, what we advise, is a half-day session. Actually, just let's get the the juices flowing. So a half-day session with the CXO team and maybe senior VPs where they sit down and go through a mapping exercise and they say, okay, what are the agilities that we would need? So the very concept of thinking agility is multiple is a, a mindset change for them. So once they start evaluating this, then they come up with this map of the world which, they, which is going to evolve in the next few months or next few couple of years maybe. And then they say, what do we have now? And you start off with that mapping to, you know, uh, assessment uh, correlation, where you're saying, okay, we have this, but we need to have these. And that's where I think immediately one begins to see the, the shift in uh, the mindset, in the culture. And so one, one of the beautiful things about this model, Mukul, is that, uh, you know, it's not just the company that we talk about, but it's also a model for personal leadership. And that's what I find very, very interesting, that it, uh, in computer science terms, you could call it recursive, in the sense that the same framework holds for an individual who wants to be a leader in the midst of change to a team that wants to handle change to an entire organization. So it goes up and down the organization from the individual right up to the organizational structure. So the same five agilities work in all places. And so if you develop that mindset, um, that's where we, I would advise the CXOs, the CEOs to kind of assemble a team of uh, CXOs and start off with that. Great. Well, so this has been a very uh, you know, instructive uh, and illuminating conversation, Prasad. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Absolutely, Mukul. My pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.